0: Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. To get that golden trophy, which has eluded people such as, I I didn't do a little research, Alfred Hitchcock never won one. George Lucas never won one, right? Tom Cruise, thank God, he never won one, okay? How about Leonardo DiCaprio? Will that end tonight? I hope that ends, right, for Revenant? Yeah, I thought it was a great movie. I know some of you in the room, I've talked, to you didn't. I did, personally. Any guy that eats like a real buffalo heart, takes a chunk out of it, and really throws up, right, in the making of, you deserve an Oscar, right? But this can cement somebody's legacy, and what will happen when people, and what, will somebody win tonight and, and be like Holly Berry, where she just wept, and everyone was moved by that? Or do you remember Roberto Benigni, Life is Beautiful, and he, he ran around like a madman, Or will somebody be like a Marlon Brando in their shining moment in the sun? Do you remember what he did in 73? He sent a Native American to speak for him. I mean, he was, I guess that's good, I guess, completely out of his mind. You read everything about him, but how will they act? And then, you know what, there's no telling who's going to win. But I can say this to us, to you, as you watch tonight. Now, more of you are going to watch since I brought this up. I know that works. But if you win, I mean, in Tinseltown, the problem is... Some people will be one-hit wonders. Right? They're going to hold up that Oscar, maybe tonight, maybe it happens and then you never hear about them ever again. They fade off into the sunset. The light it's it's behind them. It's it's over. How many of you can say Cuba Gooding Jr.? Right? How many of you remember that name? Remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Jerry, show me the money! Remember that movie, right? After that he does like Snow Dogs. Snow Dogs is like a staple in, in like the Walmart bargain bin. Like you go there, like that's the kind of movie we don't really hear of him. I think he's a great actor, but you don't really hear of him anymore. And so it happens time and time again. Well, why did I bring that up? I brought that up, the Oscars, because we are in the last part of a four-part series in the book of Esther. And let me tell you, if you haven't been here, or you have, and you've forgotten, this is a story that is better than a Hollywood script. And the main character, the heroine we looked at, Esther, right? You look at Esther and her life, and at this point in the story last week was the amazing moment where Mordecai challenged her. Because if you remember, the people of Israel were in danger. This guy Haman, the evil guy in the story, right? He got a decree passed by the king. And this decree was that all the Jewish people would be destroyed. And Mordecai says to her, he's at the city gate and he's, you know, in sackcloth. We said he's weeping and and he's in mourning over this. And she finds out and he says, listen, you need to go before the king, and if you don't go, listen, God's going to use somebody else, but maybe he puts you here for, this, for a time such as this. And then what does she do? She says, at the end, I will go, and if I perish, I perish. That famous line that many of us have already known from Scripture. And she says that, but listen, let me tell you something. Esther is somebody that she's not a one-hit wonder. She is somebody that will get a Lifetime Achievement Award. Can I tell you one other thing? I'm digressing, but I had to mention it. Did you know that people that are nominated for the Oscars get a goodie bag? It's worth in excess of $200,000 tonight. Okay? They will get a trip to Israel. They'll get a trip to Japan. They get, uh, how about this, uh, M&Ms with their initials on them. $300 worth of M&Ms with their initials. I mean, whacked. How about $275 toilet paper? All right? They will get Yeah, yeah, go look it up. I'm not making this up. How weird is that? Why would I want toilet paper? You did a great job. You were nominated. You get toilet paper. Thanks. I appreciate that. Just what I wanted. Well, she Esther is going to get a lifetime achievement award. She's not a one-hit wonder. She's not going to fade off into the sunset. But listen, friends, she had a choice. She could have she won the Oscar for being the most beautiful you know, woman in the kingdom. This little Jewish woman, and she comes in, and she could have held it up, and she could have lived out the rest of her days saying, man, this is great. I am arm candy for the king. Look at how beautiful I am, my exquisite beauty, and she could have worn gems, and she could have walked around and never had to do anything, and everything would have been taken care of for her, but guess what? She would have missed out. On the most important mission in her life. She would have missed out for the purpose that God had, God intended for her life. She would have missed out on everything, the greatest moment for her. And she risked obedience. Get that? Understand that. She risked obedience. And we said, You have to turn those fans off, please. She said, listening to Mordecai, I guess I'm going to go and if I perish, I perish. We said last week, how many of you have a Mordecai that challenges you? How many of us in here, you have somebody that will tell you the truth that won't shrink back and that happened in her life? How about our lives? So she risks and you know what she does? She dies to self. Dr. Martin Luther King put it this way. I always forget this one's out. Soon, that one will be fixed. Two weeks, it'll be fixed. If a man hasn't discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. And all of us, listen to me, all of us, part of this Christian life, this Christian bag is we have to die to self. And sometimes we have to die to some of those dreams or things that, you know what, God hasn't intended, God hasn't planned for our lives. But here is a woman that says, I will die to self. We live in a world, we live in an age, we live in a culture where society tells us, just fulfill all of your appetites and all of your desires. Do not deny yourself anything. If you want it, get it. You want to buy it, buy it. And here is a woman in a story that says, I will sacrifice everything. And here is, let me tell you, this is the crux of the message right now. Get this. This is, you know, Pastor Linda was very influential in helping me this week. No idea still why the woman has not written a book, okay? very, inf- I'm being serious, on this topic that I'm going to talk about today, she is a master. There's nobody better. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I looked at a book, and it really caught my attention some years ago, and I, I pulled it out again by John Ortberg, and it's, it's about the shadow mission that we all have, and you may go, well, what the heck is that? It's a Carl Jung term. How many of you know the, the psychologist Carl Jung? Secular psychologist. Was not a Christian. His father was a minister, but he is not a Christian. And he talked about that we all have a shadow side, a shadow mission in life. So I want to give credit where credit's due. She was very influential, and knows a heck of a lot more about the topic than I do, and John Ortberg. And, and what she told me was a heck of a lot better than what was written in Ortberg's book, which is why I'm, I'm saying that. She's going to get mad at me later. But hey, it's true. I don't know. Speak the truth here. So what is this shadow mission? I'm going to use, here's a definition. This was the best part of Ortberg's book. I'm going to put it up for you. You'll have this this week in your small groups if you want to use it. When will I learn? At some point, right? At some point, I'll learn. You and I were created to have a mission in life. I think everybody knows that. We were made to make a difference. But if we do not pursue the mission for which God designed and gifted us, we will find a substitute. That goes for everyone in here. It's not everyone. We cannot live in the absence of purpose. Without an authentic mission, we will be tempted to drift on autopilot, to let our lives center around something that is unworthy, something selfish, something dark, a shadow mission. It's good, right? It's rich. This is what you'll be talking about in your hill houses this week. The shadow mission. You see, as as many of us know, we're all born with a certain mission or a purpose. You know, Rick Warren wrote a book some years ago, right? The purpose-driven life. We're supposed to live on purpose and live for a purpose. But for many of us, I find in doing this long enough and having conversations with people, I hear that a lot. And people will always say, I, how, do, how do I find, my, what is my purpose? And I keep searching, what is my purpose? And I have a lot to say about that. And I would start by saying, it is not easy to find what your purpose is sometimes. I think we think, you become a Christian, and then all of a sudden, ah, the heavens open up, and God just tells you exactly what you're supposed to do. Where you're supposed to go. And I don't think that's really true. Sometimes it's like when you go to a mall or you go somewhere and they have those maps and you're like, where am I? I don't know where I am. And it's like you are here and you're in, this mid- you're in the middle of this story and you're trying to ascertain where you're supposed to go. And you're like, where have I been? Where am I going? What's going on in life? It is a challenge. It is not an easy thing to find out what your purpose is sometimes. And sometimes it, it does, it takes hard work. But we don't want that. We want, to ha- we want it to happen by osmosis. Or just tell me. Tell me what it's supposed to be. Well, how do you find your purpose? A couple of ways we can, right? One is we look, we look up to God and we, we look inside. What is God speaking to our hearts? What is God saying to us? Then we have to understand, what, 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 what are we passionate about? John Eldridge, you know, he says it so well. He says, find what makes you come fully alive and go do that. What makes us, what makes you come fully alive? Find out what that is and go do it. What are those things that you're passionate about? And then bring the kingdom into it. Bring God into it. It's not, we don't compartmentalize. Well, this is church, and this is something else outside of church that I'm passionate about. No, no, no. We don't compartmentalize. We bring God into every single sphere of our lives. We look at everything through the prism of how, Jesus, can I bring you into this? Your life lives inside of me. How do I bring this into, into this situation or the circumstance? And next, I would say, you don't find your purpose out of the context of community. You don't find it. Other people tell you. Listen, almost whatever it was, 15 years ago when, when Pastor Linda said to me, you're going to speak, speak in church. I would speak in prayer meetings. Then it was like, you're going to deliver a sermon. I'm like, deliver a That's what you do. I'm not delivering a sermon. And I was like, no, 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 people have, you know, people are saying, they're, they're, they're looking at it saying, you have a gift, you're a communicator. I didn't want to do it. Again, I say it over and over, I did, God, I didn't want to do this. I saw them do it, had no interest in doing it, but enough people said it, and she kind of threw me out there. And let me tell you something, God has never let me down. He's never, ever let me down. And as hard as it is sometimes, as difficult as it is, it has saved my life. Let me say that again preaching has saved my life at times it is it is you know it's been so difficult and I, i've expressed that but in a sense and that may sound weird counterintuitive but it saved my life because this is what i'm supposed to do i'm supposed to preach the good news i'm supposed to be a communicator again i didn't ask for it but this is what i'm supposed to do and it saved my life because it causes me listen there are times i don't want to be so focused and get into. it makes me get into the word it makes me seek his face and that's honest I can lie to you and say, oh yeah, every single day I wake up and I just can't wait to get into the scripture, I just can't wait, and the music's playing and the birds are chirping, that's not reality. Maybe it is for you, but it's not for one of your pastors, it's not. So Frederick Nietzsche said it well, how about this? He said, he who has a strong enough why can bear almost any how. So let me say it another way, Nietzsche, not a Christian, I love using people that aren't Christians, I do, I really do. Because, like, the study of psychology is the study of man. Here's somebody that understood something. What is the why in our lives? So I'm saying purpose. What is the why in your life? What is it? Everywhere I look, I see infomercials. I see, you know, there are ads everywhere. There are books everywhere. Go to your local bookstore, and it's how-to books. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How to be happy, right? How to make money, right how to uh, buy a house how to flip a house how to raise a kid how to flip a kid there are books about everything right but It's the why question. Why were we created? When we get the why and we understand what God has in store for us and the purpose he has, the why of our existence, we can get through anyhow. It doesn't matter what situation you're put in. I know my why. I know my why personally. This is what I'm supposed to do. I can get through anyhow. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That's not Christianity. But I can get through situations because I know what my why is. So can I help us today in in trying to recognize what our shadow missions are? Can I help us today with that? All right. Here is, and I took this from somebody that was writing about, somebody was blogging about this on the internet. This is not from John Ortberg's book, but Pastor Linda and I thought it was wonderful. A shadow mission exhausts you, while a true mission energizes you. A shadow mission comes from guilt or insecurity, while a true mission comes from freedom and love. A shadow mission is about you, while a true mission involves you, but also includes God and others. A shadow mission makes you feel more distant from God, even though you're trying to earn his approval, while a true mission brings you closer to him. And I love this. Most of all, there is just no joy in a shadow mission, while a true mission leads to joy, even though it may be hard. You know, for me, and, and this is something I want you to you know, ponder and meditate on this week, I have many shadow missions. I don't just have one. I have multiple shadow missions. What I'm asking you to do this week is focus on the shadow mission that God is speaking to your heart about right now. You know what? My number one, I'll be open and, and honest with you this morning, I would say, and it, my number one shadow mission, I would say in life, is to stay busy. And you know, really? You know, the problem is, I get so busy, it's the, it's the, it's the, I create work to avoid the real work. And you know what the real work for me is inside? The real work is to find soul satisfaction and to find rest for my soul. And so many times I'm aiming and and I look and I'll even preach, and I've been doing this for a long time now, but I still wrestle with, I still, and you may find that I still wrestle with that you're not, you're only as good as the last sermon that you preached. You're only as good as that. I still wrestle with as a preacher and I know it cerebrally, I know it cognitively, I know it theologically, but to live out what I really know that I'm really loved and accepted and everything that he's done, he's done it already, it's finished. I still wrestle with that. I still wrestle with my identity. I still wrestle with people approval. I still wrestle with that as a teacher at school and I still wrestle with it here. It's real. I still wrestle with it. How about you? What's your shadow mission? And I work, and I work, and I work, and I work hard because sometimes I don't want to hear. On a Monday, a lot of times, I don't want to listen to the voices. I can't sleep sometimes on Sunday night. How come you said that? Why did you say that to people? You're such an idiot. Those are the voices from the enemy that I'll hear. And they wake up on Monday, and sometimes I'll run from anything that is deemed as being spiritual. I can't. I just can't handle it. Because my identity sometimes, I lose focus on whose I am and who I am. I lose focus on what God has created me for, and I don't have to try to do anything. I don't have to get approval from you. I know I am already accepted in him, and I can rest, and the real work is counterintuitive. I don't have to do anything. Right? But it's so hard again. You know, we were watching, Megan and I were watching last night. If you, Catch this if you can. There was a special on Jaws right, the making of the movie Jaws, dun, 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 dun. and it was this, it was, oh, and that, we, again, we live for stuff like that, I don't want to watch regular TV, I want like documentaries like that, love that kind of stuff, and there we are, we're watching it, and Steve, I never knew any of this, and you probably didn't know this either, this is Spielberg's like first big movie, he would say at the end of the documentary, it was the best experience of his life, and the worst experience of his life, he, he was on the edge. It, it took longer to shoot, like six months longer. Megan, I don't know. You, could, you know this better than I do, but I think it was like six months longer than it was intended to. He wasn't even there for the final shot of the movie because he thought they were going to throw him in the water. Everybody was at odds with each other. People weren't getting along, and here is this guy, his whole reputation. He's at the premiere of this. He doesn't know if he's ever going to direct another movie, and you're going, Steven Spielberg? Yes, this was his first big movie, and he talked about what a hard experience it was. In some ways, it was horrible, but this this is what the man was passionate about. Can you imagine if we didn't have a Steven Spielberg? And I looked at this and said, That's a, there's a parallel spiritually. This is what the spiritual life is like. You find something you're passionate about, but it is not easy. Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers, he said it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert in anything. 10,000 hours. Work, work, work. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. The enemy wants us to. He wants us to quit. Just quit. And then we realize, we go, man, this Christian thing is really tough. Yeah, it is. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's the most rewarding thing you'll ever do because this is what you were created for. And the scary thing is that we can just go the rest of our lives, and I love what Ortberg said here. He said that we can just drift on autopilot. How many of us in here, you're just drifting on autopilot? Be honest. You don't have to raise your hand, but you feel as if you're You're drifting. You're just drifting. You're like out at sea, and you're just kind of moving, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm drifting. You don't know where you're going. You have no destination. You're drifting out there somewhere. Can I be really honest as one of your pastors, too? I see so many people, you know they drift on autopilot? I see people that just sit on, uh, listen, I have a Facebook account. I use it more for my, my other job. I use it when I can collaborate with other teachers around the world in sociology and, and U.S. history, what I teach. But I see so many people that have settled for trivial pursuits and they sit on Facebook and the, 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 the narcissistic, uh, I'm so, do I go there? Listen, the sense, uh, uh, I don't know, how do I say this? How do I find words to say this the right way in a church? I would say some people, I think, spend, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying in general, people are A, in love with themselves. They post all of these things that are so trivial. I don't care that you went to the bathroom two hours ago. I don't need to know that. People tweet stuff that is absolutely silly. It's stultifying. People will spend time on Instagram. I laugh and I see all this stuff and I say, that is a shadow mission. Our kids can be shadow missions. Listen to me. That's another thing. We're at the meeting yesterday and I think Jamal brought it up. We are a culture. Parents, our generation, my generation, the idolatry with our kids is out of control. We idolize our kids. We want to live through them. And we look at them in all the sports and stuff, and I'm like, man, it's over the top. Right? You see it? It could be your job. It could be power. It could be money. All these things can be shadow missions in our lives. And again, the culture is very good at selling us, hey, look, this is what everyone does. Everyone, everyone participates in this. And I would say, no, you were created for more there is a purpose that God has for you that is bigger and deeper and broader and richer than sitting on, looking at a computer screen or idolizing your kids or wh- looking at a TV. Sc- whatever it is, those things are. Listen to me. We're supposed to have jobs and we're supposed to like our jobs. We're supposed to love our kids and help our kids. But it's when that thing that is a good thing becomes the only thing and the greatest thing, it becomes idolatry. Did you hear me? Don't hear me say as you leave that I'm saying those things. What do you mean? Those things? No, those things are good and in and of themselves. The, Devil, right? The devil, what has he done? Tolkien, you know what Tolkien said? The devil, Satan, cannot create anything in and of itself. All he does is take what God has already created and distorts it. He twists it. That changed my life. When I heard that, I said, oh my gosh, that is so true. I never once thought of that. He takes what has already been created and he changes it. He distorts it. Something, love, marriage, something that was supposed to be so good. The top websites in the world are pornographic. Come on. Taking something that is intended to be good, and he has twisted it. He distorts it. Man, that's how the enemy works, and he's very good at it. So, can we get into the rest of the book of Esther now? That's the go- the, that, this is what I want to talk about, though, because the book of Esther is a book of shadow missions. It's a book of shadow missions and missions, and they're kind of woven together, Right? And you look at it because God is trying to do something. He's trying to show us something in all of the main characters. Esther has a mission. She has a shadow mission. Mordecai, mission, shadow mission. Haman, mission, shadow mission. And here is a woman, right? She could have just said, you know what? Life is for beauty. Life is for what, Like just sitting here and being the queen. Pastor Linda said this to me. And who was the guy that you got that from? John Powell. I don't even know who John Powell is, right? You think I read a lot, the the books and the authors? We're talking, and she's just going. I said to Megan last night, I said, Megan, the woman is unbelievable. You left the room, and I said, the woman is unbelievable. She's just rattling off people, and like, yeah, in this chapter, and I'm going, what? And this guy said, life is for, you fill in the blank, to to yourself, life is for what? Because Megan said her answer, and then you know what my answer was? I won't say hers, my answer was work. Life is for work. Work, work, work. You see, even if you're not conscious of it, we all, have, we all have a mission and a shadow mission. Even if you're not aware of it, you have it. There is a shadow mission. That does it, what that means is, I should say, is that we have to find out what it is and go after it and find out what the real mission is that God has for us. Every single one of us, listen, please, every single person in here has value in the eyes of God. You have value. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what society says. I don't care if you clean bathrooms. I don't care if you work in a doctor's office. I don't care if you're a lawyer, a teacher. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom. You have value in the eyes of God. You do. And here is Esther she could have taken the safe route. She could have had a life that was just built on ease, right? Comfort, security. That could have been her life. You know, no one goes to see a movie that the title is Mission Not So Difficult, right? You go see Mission Impossible. If, right, if Tom Cruise in a movie, it's Mission Not So Difficult. How many of you are going to buy tickets for that? I'm not buying a ticket for that. I want to see a tough mission. I want it. well, I can't tell you what I, the character. I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. Maybe you are, but... You know what I mean? Like, life is supposed to be hard. We're on a mission, and it's difficult. It's not going to be easy. But let's roll up our sleeves and do it together. In the context of community, we can do it. We can find it. All right, without any further ado, let's get into, here's the text. I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm finishing the story today. I'm going to give you the highlights from the rest of the book of Esther. And we're starting in chapter 5. If you remember last week again, where did we say, right, Esther says, if I perish, I perish. All right, so moving on to the next chapter, so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she found favor in his sight. Remember, she hasn't seen him for 30 days. She could have been executed right then and there. The king had the right to do that. She doesn't know what's going to happen. Found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. All right, what does this mean? All right, he is not literally saying, Esther, I love you so much. I am literally going to give you half of my kingdom. If she had said, You know what? I want half of the kingdom that you have. Give me half of it. She, he would have been like, she would have been done. You're done. Next. You would have gotten rid of her. You know what this is kind of like? The way, this is kind of like. When somebody's you're on the couch with your spouse, maybe, and the TV's on, this is like maybe the husband saying, here, you can have the remote control tonight. Here, what do you want? Tell me what you want, right? Within reason, like I did last night. What was I watching last night? I fell asleep. Fuller house? Why do they make another full house? Really? It was full. I was full enough from Full House. I don't need to be any fuller watching that show again. Some of you like have no idea. It was a show from the 1980s. It was terrible. I don't know whose idea it was to bring it back. Whatever. That's what I'm watching. So as a good husband, I said, here, honey, what would you like to watch tonight? I wanted to watch this other documentary. I wouldn't have probably stayed awake for it. So I said, you watch what you want. Well, that's in essence what's going on here. That's what he's basically saying. And Esther knows that she can't revoke and the king can't revoke the unalterable law of the Medes and the Persians remember the decree that was issued by the king was what that Haman said there's a group of people he doesn't do his due diligence there's a group of people and I want to you know I want them destroyed and they don't they don't pay homage to you it's talking about the Jewish people but here in, this, here in this church, she knows that and she understands it. And what I love about her is how she grows as a character. Because we are supposed to grow as Christians. And you watch and how she understands and she's kind of political. And she understands how to play this king. She's no longer this young, innocent, demure little girl that doesn't understand anything. No, she's been thrust into this arena, wasn't really prepared for it. But she's learning. It's baptism by fire. And now she's here, and then in the next verse, look what it says. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for him. This is a king, if you remember, he has never turned down a party in his life, right? This guy is a party, he loves, any, any, there's a party, he wants to be there. You remember at the beginning of the book, there was a six-month party, six-month party. That's who this king is. But here she is, she is very strategic, and she's saying, right, she understands, listen, she understands what her real mission is, and she says to the king, hey, look, I want to have a banquet. I want you and Haman. Haman, again, is the COO. He's the chief operating officer. He's the number two man in charge. I want both of you to come to a meeting, to a banquet. And then moving down to verse 6 through 8, at the banquet of wine, the king said, some translations, he's drinking, he's he's drinking heavily, all right? Again, that's what he does. So the king is drinking. He says to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. He's not really that original. He kind of just says the same things over and over again. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Oh, my gosh. You look at this woman. You look what she's doing. She's, in essence, getting a yes before she even asks. Because now she has, right? she has the king on the edge of his seat. What do you, what do you, what do you want? What do you want? Come like, like, on, Tell me. Tell me. What is it? Tell me. He, she's going to get it, and she knows. So she's strategically doing this, and she knows what's going to happen here. Now, move forward to verse 9. What happens? So Haman went out that day. He's joyful. He is a happy boy. Right? Remember, Haman is going to destroy, not just Mordecai, he's going to destroy all the Jews. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Remember the beef we talked about last week? These guys don't like each other. right? He's an Agagite, right? an Israelite. They don't like each other. So the fact that here he is again, Mordecai is not bowing down, this is, he's incensed. He's enraged, and he's like, I have to do something because I'm seeing this guy, this Jew, that refuses to bow down to me. And then at 10, 11, right, he's going to go home. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. must have been very hard for him. Restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches. Who is this guy, right? Tells them of his great riches. Like, we don't know how wealthy you are, okay? Tells them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him. And how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. So he's in love with himself. He's telling everybody, this is who I am, right? He's full of pride. And this is, you have to understand, this book is trying to tell us too. Remember, there's no mention of God in the whole book. But this book is trying to show us the law of inversion. And those that think they're the greatest, those that think they're on top, right? They're going to be on the bottom. The least are going to be the greatest. The proud will be humbled. That's what this book is trying to say. And it's so clear. And that's why when you see this passage and you you read those words, you're like, man, this is God has a plan and he knows what he's doing. Now, moving on from there in 13 and 14. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made. 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Go merrily with the king to the banquet. Do you like that, right? You know, now let me stop here for a second. The gallows that would be built here, 50 cubits high, would be 75 feet high. 75 feet high. They would impale people. That's how they did this. So I showed you, and actually, this is interesting, not, not surprising. The word gallows in Hebrew is actually where we get our English word tree from. So they would actually, literally, you're hanging somebody from a tree. You get impaled, and then they hang you on the top. So here he's saying, I'm going to sit in my house. Let me build these gallows here. I'm going to drink my coffee, and I'm going to watch my enemy, right, hang from the top of these gallows, 75 feet high in the air. Honey, look out the window. Isn't that nice? There's my enemy, Mordecai, kind of hanging out up top. I mean, that's what he, in essence, wants. He built this in his backyard, So he's saying this, right? I want this to happen again. Law of inversion. How crazy this is going to be. The irony in this story. So seventy-five feet high, you would get impaled on that. Now a commentator even said the king would have probably been able to see this from his palace. How crazy is that? Seventy-five feet high. That everybody in the kit you would have seen mordecai's body up there and that was i mean this was the this wasn't the way that you wanted to go out to get executed this way was the worst way that somebody this was reserved for criminals eventually you move on and you move forward and we see crucifixion obviously with the romans but this is how the persians handle things so this is what he wants the the most cursed possible death that you can have now remember at the bottom what did we say at the bottom of that verse so she's telling him listens to the wife Go to the banquet, see the king, right? And then everything's going to be good because you're going to hang your enemy. Tomorrow is it. You're not going to be able to sleep tonight. You're going to be so excited that this guy is going to be hanging up there in the morning, right? So go to the next chapter because things are never as they appear in this book. God is always hidden. He's always working mysteriously. In the beginning of the next chapter, that night the king could not sleep. Oh, what a surprise, okay? The king has insomnia. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. I mean, the king can't read to himself, right? He can't sleep. So somebody has to read to him. So he gets one of his servants, and you're going to read to him. And what do you think the king is going to read about? Himself, right? The king is in love with himself. Let me read about myself. And then here's the story that I'm going to skip ahead, but he reads about how this guy, Mordecai, saved his life. Just happens to read this story. Again, just happened. Coincidence, right? Just happens that the king is being read a story. So he asks his servant, hey, that Mordecai guy, did we ever, like, honor him for what he did? Did we ever honor him? And the servant's like, no, nah, no, nah, you didn't. You forgot about him. Totally forgot about him. He doesn't say it that way because he'd probably be executed. No, sir, we, you know, no, king, we didn't. And then the king says, all right, we're gonna, we have to do something for this guy. Again, Haman is coming to the king the next day, and he's going to talk to the king about, right, taking this guy Mordecai out. He has no idea. And then you go down to verse 6, right? So Haman came in after this. He doesn't know that the king couldn't sleep. He has no idea that the king had insomnia the night before. He has no idea that the king has been read a story about this guy Mordecai, and he's never been honored. So here in verse 6, it says, so Haman came in, and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I love this part. How many of you? Now, this is what I see when I read this text. I see it's coming out this week. I see House of Cards. right? I see Frank Underwood. What? Some, you, a lot of you don't even know what that is, right? Don't watch it. I, ju- I know about it, right? I've heard about this show called House of Cards, right? And Kevin Spacey plays the president. He's Frank Underwood. And what's wild is there's always these scenes where... He turns, and he'll talk to the audience, and the actors, the other people that are in the room, they can't hear him. So this is what I kind of see, right? I kind of see him, like, looking to the audience, and he's kind of, like, winking, right? Don't you, like, see him kind of winking and looking, and he's like, well, I guess I'll use, like, a southern accent here. And I see him, like, look, like, I guess this is my shining moment right now. I guess I better go for everything, the whole kit and kaboodle, right? Some of you are asleep today. What's wrong with you? Man. So he goes in, and then he's like, right, he's looking. He's like, I bet I'm going to go for it all. I'm not holding back. I'm going for everything. Because he thinks, right, what does he think at this point? He thinks, I'm the guy that the king is going to honor. Who's he going to honor? I'm his number two guy. I'm the COO. He loves me. Has to be me. And this is the great part. This is why it's so rich. The irony is just unbelievable. Seven through nine. And Haman answered to the king. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Right? You have to laugh. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Haman's like, This is it! This is it! And he's trying to play it off, like, it's not really a big deal. Yeah, okay. And and then, you know, all right, when's the king going to say it? And then the king, what does he do? The king says, all right, all right, Haman. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Oh, I love the idea, Haman. That's the best idea I ever heard. Can you imagine the humiliation of this guy? And he's like totally despondent totally dejected because he thought he was going to be the one that is honored you imagine what he's saying to himself he's cursing under his breath as he's dragging this horse and mordecai yeah this is the one the king wants to honor he had to have been what was that little banter like the conversation he hates him hates him you have to use your imagination when you read the text it had to have happened when he was doing this It's funny. God has a sense of humor sometimes. Look at this story. You can't make this up. That's why I'm telling you it's better than a Hollywood script. So he takes him, right? And he takes him. He parades him around. And then what happens after that? All right, in verse 12 through 14, right, verses. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house. You bet he hurried to his house. fast as he ever got there. Mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Thanks, honey. I had a great day. You're just making it a lot better. (laughs) While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now again, just before 24 hours ago, this guy is like, he's elated. He's stoked about going to this banquet. He, is the, he thinks he's going to be the guy that's honored. He's sitting next to the king. Life is good. Life is beautiful. And everything blows up in his face. Everything. And I think that happens sometimes. And then you go ahead, move ahead into, into chapter 7. We're almost done. We're getting there. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, listen to this, let my life be given me, let my, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary, and enemy, is the wicked Haman. Now, <laughs> some glaring things from this point, this part of the text. One, right? How come they've been married for five years? How come he still doesn't know what her nationality is? It's kind of like I'm Italian, right? My wife is Irish. It would be like, right? If, if I came home one day and she made Irish food, which I'm not a huge maybe this it's coming up, right? St. I love it actually. Mother-in-law, I love, I, I love Irish food, I love it, I love the corned beef, I, I like the cabbage, I like the potatoes, the corned beef, I can kind of do with, get rid of, all right, anyway, it would be like I came home though, right, follow this, I came home and she had like this Irish food set up for like St. Patty's Day, and I'm like, what's the deal with the Irish food tonight, and she's like, what, she's like, I never told you I'm Irish, and I'd be like, what, I thought you were Italian, <laughs> right, <laughs> the whole time, I thought you were Italian, Right, I wondered why the lasagna wasn't so good. Now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a, I, I'm, glu, listen, she doesn't make lasagna. I don't eat gluten, okay? I don't want lasagna. I don't want that. All right, you mad at me. Some of you are like, you're going to get in trouble later. I'm not getting in trouble later. All right, so you get that. So that's what's going on here in this part of the story. But I, I love this, right? So the king, again, the king is not the brightest, right? He's not the brightest guy in the world. He may rule the world, he's not the brightest, because now he's so upset. Who is this? Who has done this? And she's like none other than Haman. And you can hear the music in the background, like da da, right? And he's like eyes like pop out, and he's like shocked, right? As they pan in on him, and he starts to sweat. Bees of sweat are coming down his forehead, right? It's the Oscars tent. I'm playing everything up today. <laughs> Have to, All right? And then you move on here seven, eight. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine. He's probably inebriated at this point, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther. This is, I love this part. Pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. No, you didn't, Haman. You didn't just do that. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? Oh, this is so rich. Okay. In that culture... When the king left the palace and he goes into the garden, he's storming around. First of all, he's not mad at himself because he's the king. Who can I blame? Haman. This is all Haman's fault. It's really his fault, but let's blame it on Haman. Who can be be the goat? I'm going to take it out on him. Now, Haman knew. When the king left somewhere, did you know in this culture, you were not allowed to be within seven feet of a woman? that was part of the harem or the queen, not allowed to be with seven feet. All right, yes, hey, how are you? Because It would take your life. You're not allowed to be within seven feet when the king is gone. So here is this guy, Haman, he is violating cultural laws. He is, everybody in that culture knows he is so desperate for him to take his body and throw it on the couch. When they ate in this culture, they'd recline on couches. So I picture this guy, and he's like, he's like, please, please, I'll do anything. And can you see her face? You have to see Esther's face. This is the best part of the story, because everything now has come full circle. He's, she, he's tried to destroy the Jewish people, and she took a risk. And she said, I will go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. And now she has that look on her face, because she was the Barbie doll, but now she's the warrior. Now she's the brave heart. Yeah, this is good. That's why when the king comes in, and look, oh, here's the next part. I love teaching this stuff. Now Harbona, you got to laugh at this too. One of the eunuchs said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. This guy, these these guys, these eunuchs can't stand Haman. So they're looking right away. Yeah, right over, yeah, yeah, boss, right over there. Look, there's a gallows being built. Take him out. And it's like Haman, you're like, really? Really, after all I've done, we don't know what he's done for them, but I just thought that was kind of funny. So here you go. And then that's what's amazing. The gallows that Haman built for Mordecai are where he will meet his end. Right there. Oh, friends, it's the law of inversion. Do not be mistaken. The law of inversion is really true. And then you move forward, only a couple more verses in 8 2. So the king took off his signoring because there's still a problem. Understand this, there's still a problem. There's the unalterable law of the Medes and Persians. And the law was, right, that all of the Jews are going to be destroyed. He can't take that away. That's a, so he's got a, he's in a predicament here. He's got a huge problem. So the king takes off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. So Mordecai now. So not only will he be executed, right, where he put up these gallows, but now Mordecai, his enemy, his the person he hates, is going to take his position. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Really? Really, Hollywood? Good luck. Reads like fiction. This is real, friends. This story really happened. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some fable. I gave you in the first part of the series, I gave you real history. This story, you, one day you'll meet, you'll meet Esther. You'll get to see her. Esther, come on, give it to me. Do it. Come on, come on, give it to me. Yes? If I perish, I perish. Come on, how did you say it? What did it look like? Come on. Mordecai, what was that... Well, we're going to meet these people. You don't. Listen. <laughs> By these letters, the king permitted. Now, the king, what does the king do? The king has to make a new, that has to be a new decree, a new law. So Mordecai is smart. So Mordecai says, i got a great idea. Can't alter that law, but we can make a new law. And the new law is going to say that all of the Jews within the Persian Empire can defend themselves. And great, Right? By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them. You know what people were doing? Look, in the last part, you know what people are doing? They wanted to become, I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm, I've been a Jew the whole time, right? They put their knives, I'm, yeah, I'm really Jewish. Because people were afraid. True, right? And then the last part, and Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Isaurus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them those days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And did you know what? For all the Jewish people in the world, they will be celebrating that in two weeks. Purim will be celebrated in two weeks where they look at this story and they read it remember last week right with the shaking of the of, of the rattles that will happen in two weeks I have never been in a synagogue I've never been invited I may have to get in one somehow I have no idea but I'd love to be in a synagogue where the story is read like that and they read it they read the whole story the whole story and people say they do it in the morning and then they do it at night they come back at night and they do the same thing right not awesome how many of you would want to do that just lie, right? Come on, just lie. Make it like, make, yeah, yeah. So this is Purim. This is the feast of Purim. Now, again, let's tie all this up. I'm done at the end. When you look at this, it's so interesting again. Let's go back to what really the crux of the message was. In the beginning, we talked about, I'm going to read this. I took some of this from a, a commentator. and I, This is fascinating. He says, how is it that of all the women in the empire, a Jewish girl named Esther becomes queen? How is it that of all the people in the empire, Mordecai should be the one to save the king from an assassination plot, right? How is it that the king should have insomnia on the very night that Haman had built the gallows for Mordecai? Of all the stories in the world, the one that is read to him was the story of Mordecai saving his life. How is it that Haman, the scheming murderer, becomes victim of his own schemes? That Mordecai, who was supposed to be the murdered man, becomes instead Haman's replacement, How does the king's ring, which was given to Haman, end up on Mordecai's finger? How does the noose, which was intended for Mordecai, end up around Haman's neck? How is it that the people who mark the Jews for destruction are instead themselves destroyed? The writer wants us to understand at the end of the book, friends, the way it started, there was a huge banquet going on. And listen, it ends with a banquet. It starts with a banquet, and it ends with a banquet. And listen, the the writer wants us to know there may be no Jerusalem. There may be no Sanhedrin. There may be no chance right now that they're going to go back and God seems so absent from the story, but God is on every single page and he's on every single page of your life and he's in every single story and he's in every single situation and sometimes he's hidden and sometimes it's vague, things are shrouded in ambiguity, but listen, he is indeed there. That's what, listen, that's what this, the writer wants you to know. I'm telling somebody in here today, you can, you can play some music or something. I'm telling somebody in here today that feels as if you don't know where God is, and I would say God knows exactly where you are. He has numbered every single hair on your head. He knows your situation at work. He knows your situation at home. And God doesn't, listen, don't walk out of here and say, God doesn't cause everything. God uses things. Romans 8.28, I'm preaching it at Tom's church tonight. It's my favorite passage in the Bible. It's my favorite. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, not some things. In the totality of life, you may not see it now, but understand God had a plan and he has a plan. And one day, if you don't see it here, you'll see it on the other side. And in conclusion, we come to the table. It's Lent, friends. It's Lent. And I think about the one during this 40 days, as we lead up to him coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. I think about Jesus and he had a shadow mission. Jesus Christ had a shadow. You know what the shadow mission was? The shadow mission was to avoid suffering, friends. That's what the shadow mission was. From the time he's taken out into the wilderness and there is Satan. Turn this rock into bread. Avoid pain and suffering. That was a that was shadow mission for him. He could have taken that. He could have avoided suffering what happened when he's with peter right and he tells him hey look i'm gonna die right it's gonna happen you guys need to know this and peter's like that's not lord that's not gonna happen he says get behind these satan because peter says i don't want you to suffer and then one day as we're coming up to palm sunday as we're coming up to the holy week in lent i think about one that was in the garden of gethsemane and he's sweating drops of blood father he agonized father Take this cup from me. And then somehow, which we'll never understand, not my will, but thy will be done. And all the way to the cross, when he says, Father, Father, uh, you know, what what did he say? Help me, somebody, what did he say? I'm losing my mind. Why have have you forsaken me? Yeah, thank you, thank you. What's wrong with me? He understood, and then when he said, it's finished, it's finished. You You can rest now it's over. You know what I love? And I want you to a pl- promise last thing. You know what I think? I looked at this story and I looked at a lot of characters in the Bible and I think we can look at them and go, I want to be like Esther. How many of you, right? And we, we, we tell our kids, little girls, "Hey, you know, I want you to be like Esther. If we try to be like these characters, we'll get crushed. We'll get crushed. They're only signposts. They're signposts that point to the cross and they point to what Jesus did on Calvary because she said, if I perish, I'll, I, I'll I perish. He said, I'm going to perish. I'm going to perish for you. When I perish, I'll perish. You understand that? That's what he was saying on the cross. I'm going to perish, not if. It's when he accepted the fact that this was going to happen. All the way through, he knows, and he accepts that. His shadow mission was he could have avoided that. What is today? What is your shadow mission? What is God saying to you? What is your purpose? You have to find that. Find that in the context of community. When you're in your small groups this week, be talking about that stuff. But understand something. This table says it is completely finished. Your identity, you, are, you don't have to do anything. It has been done for you. Everything has been finished. You look to the one. You don't be like Esther. You look to the one who did everything already. Right. What other God? What other God emptied himself? The Kenosis passage in Philippians 2. Gave up everything, his reputation. Didn't grasp onto it, didn't want to hold onto it, said, I'm going to empty myself for every single person, every single one who wants it. Lord, Lord, I thank you that the flower may fade and the grass may wither, but I thank you that your word, Lord, stands forever. I thank you that this story has stood the test of time. I thank you that it's better than any Hollywood script. I thank you, Father, that even though you were not mentioned in any single page, you were everywhere. You were imbued in, in the whole book, Lord, because you knew exactly what you were doing. Father, I thank you that you have your hand on our lives today. Lord, I thank you that we have come to the kingdom. We have been born for such a time as this. Lord, I thank you that every single one of us in here has a real mission, Lord. Father, we, I ask, Lord, that we would not live out our days living out a shadow mission. Father, I ask that we would live out the God-given mission that you have for us. Lord, help us. Help us in our meetings. Help us in our time together and our conversations. Help us to find out that which you are calling us to, Lord. Make us conscious of it. Lord, help us to find deep soul satisfaction, deep rest, Lord. We're weary, we're tired because we're striving, Lord. I'm a striver. Speak, I'm a striver. Help me, Lord. Help me, the speaker, Lord. Help me to understand I don't have to strive anymore. Help me to understand I don't need the approval of anyone, Lord. I am already approved by you, I am already loved by you. You know, my mom said it to me last night, too. She said, Think of like your kids. Just how much right you love your kids, the love that you have for your children. I like Jameson yesterday. It was like kind of funny. He, he won't say it to me, but I guess he said it to Poppy, uh, Pastor Joe. He said, uh, in the car the other day, he was driving, and he said, I want to be a preacher. Yes, ma'am. And the kid, you know, it's funny. when you, you know, with your kids, right? Sometimes they don't really act interested in stuff and they're quiet and they're kind of laid back. And then yesterday, I'm watching this kid as he's in Grammy and Poppy's house. Grammy, he pulls out the Bible book. He ran upstairs to get his Bible book. He come da- comes downstairs. And, he, and she sets him up as only Grammy could do. Sets him up on this little uh, stand. And he starts reading the story of Moses in the Red Sea. And I sat there and I sat back. And I'm like, God, you're amazing. Somebody's going I never want you to be a preacher because of how hard it is. Hard, tough. But God, if that's your will, do it. Boy. Do it. I have to give up. Surrender. The table. This is surrender. Lent. Surrender to his Will. Culture tells us again, don't surrender. You control your own destiny. You don't. You don't. He's the destiny maker. He's the one that controls everything. Let him control it. Because I'm trying. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.